welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue in our exposition of the Gospel of Luke, coming to a section where Jesus teaches much about the times of the end. Luke chapter 21, I'm going to start at verse 7 for context, and we'll be uh, moving uh, through verses 8 through 11. And so on this day, let us hear the word of God. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. This is God's time spanning word may speak to us about all that he has for us to know of these days. In Jesus name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you so very much. As uh, we know now, we've been uh, entering into Luke 21, which is Luke's rendition of the longest description Jesus himself gave when he was asked about the times of the end. This is a parallel passage with Matthew 24 and Mark 13, and we're going to refer to Matthew. He gives a lengthier and more detailed description of what Jesus taught. It casts light on our passage. But it is without question the the detailed teaching Jesus gave about what people might call a biblically prophetic question. What is going to happen? What will be the sign of the the times of the end? And as I already mentioned, as I did some introductory teaching on this the last couple weeks, there is a, a lot of controversy about not only this passage, but the subject of prophecy in general and and biblical teaching about the times of the end and the return of Jesus Uh, Some deny that it is really something we can know very much about at all. Uh, Others dismiss it as something that a Christian shouldn't be focused on. It distracts us from uh, the calling to love and be engaged in the lives of people. If you read the Bible when it touches on prophecy, really neither of those things, in my opinion, is valid. There is so much to know, and Jesus Christ Uh, certainly followed that understanding in his teaching ministry. Now, you know that there are many prophecies in the Bible in the Old Testament about the Lord Jesus. Uh, There are 330 prophecies about Christ approximately in both Testaments. 110 of them, Old Testament scriptures predominantly, are about his first coming. 
And they were fulfilled in detail in time and space and in human history. There are 220 more about his second coming in the times of the end and how Christ figures in all of that. And my understanding of how God works is this. If he fulfilled them literally and clearly and in human time and space the first time, why wouldn't that happen the second So there's a huge amount of scripture that focuses on the second coming of Christ, the very question he was answering for these men. In fact, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament relates to the second coming of Christ. One out of every 25. Every time Christ mentioned his first coming and the meaning of it, he mentions his second coming eight times more. So this was a subject that was on his teaching mind. It was, it was in the body of truth that he wanted not only the disciples to have, but scripture to record. He referred to his, his return 20 times in his teaching ministry, and over 50 times the New Testament says, be ready for the return of Jesus. How can you be ready for something that you either deny you can understand or you dismiss as, as important? I'll leave that for you to answer. But I look at this as the word of the creator, the one who authored time, the one who plans history, the one who invaded history in the person of his son, the one who is now going to bring it all to a close, and if he has worked in the past, he'll work in the future. And I believe if he gave us detailed understandings about his plans in the past, he will again give us detailed understandings about his plans for the future. Let him tell us these things. That's my point of view. You may differ, but I'm going to share my discoveries as I've gone through this controversial passage, and I'm going to walk you through the teaching as I understand it grammatically, historically, looking at the natural nature of Scripture and understanding and comparing other Scriptures to cast light on this great prophecy of Jesus. Now we're going to do two things, as we often do. I try and break it down into two major pathways as I teach. First, I'm going to give you just a little bit more perspective on the passage. I gave you a lot last week, uh, but I want to give you just a little bit more because Matthew talks about this as a prediction that covers a long sweep of time. And I need to make that clear. So uh, three things under this, just in perspective, and then we're going to open up verses 8 to 11. So stick with me. We're going to go pretty rapidly. The first thing in perspective I want you to remember is that Jesus here gives a time-spanning answer to a question. The question I read in verse 7, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? You remember the context. This is actually the second time they asked the question. They saw the temple and they adored it as they were leaving the temple earlier that day and the sun was glinting off the golden face of the temple and they admired it and Jesus said, oh, there's coming a day when not one of these rocks will stand on another. He was predicting an event in history known as the conquering and destruction of Jerusalem. It happened 40 years later in history in AD 70 when the armies of Titus destroyed Israel and devastated the temple. It was a judgment temporarily on the nation of Israel for refusing Christ as Messiah. It's a temporary but very severe judgment, we found out from Scripture, that will extend into the future. But one day Israel will see their Messiah for who he really is when he returns under their great judgment, and they will turn to him and be restored and have a place in all of his future plans. But for now, that judgment had been taught by Jesus in the first five verses, five or six verses of Luke, 
Luke 21. Now the scene has shifted, according to Matthew, that's later in the evening, and they're now on the Mount of Olives. All of these things are rumbling through the disciples' minds, and they ask him in Matthew chapter 24, tell us, Lord, more. Tell us about what this all means. Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age, Matthew 24, 3. So that is a larger question and it spans the times of the end. They thought Jesus was going to uh, put all things right and, and, and conquer the nations, if you will. Pretty much that weekend wasn't going to happen. They misunderstood that before he came in great glory, he was coming in deep humility. And before the crown that he would wear as the king, he would return with the crown of kingship. He had to go and take that crown of thorns, didn't he? But they didn't see that in the time. It was hidden from their eyes. They didn't understand it. But now Jesus answers a question that they really didn't even understand the nature of with the teaching that he understood as the truth about the great span of time that had to happen between his first arrival and his second coming. And so I look at this and I look at Luke 21 as covering a great span of time. The span of time I taught you a couple weeks ago is what is known as the last days. What are the last days? Is it simply the times that people have talked about, the time of the tribulation at the end of history? No. The Bible tells us the last days operated from the ascension of Jesus, and they will continue to operate until the visible return of Jesus. Guess what? You're in the last days. You say, no kidding. I read the newspaper yesterday. No. Read your Bible first. The last days have spanned 2,000 years and counting so far. What are the last days all about? They're a time, as Gene wonderfully prayed, in fact, when God is carrying out his plan of rescue and he's planning his retribution upon those that re reject Jesus Christ. So it's a broad plan about God now risen in the person of Jesus Christ, moving and rescuing a people for his name out of a dark world. But, but he also is allowing time to pass and the sin of man to ripen, and one day it will ripen to the point where his just judgment will have to fall, and he will close out the history of humanity by judging human sin and all those who've rejected his love through Christ in a time called the tribulation. Now, we believe that he'll return first to gather his own beloved, his church, alive at the time into heaven, an event called the rapture that precedes the tribulation. But then the time of tribulation will come in which divine retribution and judgment falls on the earth and upon all those who have rejected his love in Christ. It will be an incredibly difficult time, some of which Jesus refers to in this chapter. When the tribulation is done, he'll visibly return. We've taught you that. And the whole world will see him and the nations will mourn over their sin. Israel will suddenly discover their savior and a new age will be entered into called the millennial kingdom. When he sets up that kingdom, the disciples were asking him about, oh, it'll take 2000 plus years, but he'll finally set it up. Jerusalem will be the capital city. He'll partially renovate the world, the earth itself. And, and he will rule over a thousand years of time. And guess what? As he promised, we will rule with him. Amen. After that, he's going to cre recreate a new heaven and a new earth and where all who belong to him are going to dwell into eternity. That's the heaven, the great eternal experience we're looking forward to. But all those who have refused to believe in his wonderful love through Christ will spend forever somewhere else in hell. You see, that's the plan of the ages. And we're in the midst of the last days in which God is working through that plan.
Now, he talks to the disciples here in verses 8 through 28 about what the events will be as the last days unfold. Now, secondly, I want to mention that Jesus here teaches six signs and two lessons regarding the last days. I mentioned these to you last time. They ask him the question, and in Matthew, he amplifies it. What will be the sign of your coming? Jesus gives them not one, but a series of six signs in verses 8 through 28. The six signs, we ran ran them through with you last time. Sign one, he said, will be spiritual deception and deceivers. We'll talk about that today. That's verse verse 8. See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. Sign two, which will occur throughout the last days, will be increasing human and natural upheaval, verses 9 to 11, where he talks about the hearing of wars and tumults, nation, verse 10, rising against nation, great earthquakes, verse 11, famines and pestilences rising across the earth over the history of the last days. Sign three will also be a rise in persecution of true believers. It began with the disciples early in their ministry. It can continues over his beloved church today, it will only increase and we'll get to a ferocious level in the time of the tribulation. That's verses 12 to 19. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Sign four will be a future attack on Jerusalem, not the attack that Titus did in AD 70. That's nothing compared to what the nations will want to do to Jerusalem as Jerusalem as a city exists in the future. The nations of the world led by the Antichrist will surround Jerusalem. That's verses 20 to 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And he describes a supernatural cataclysmic era era in history, completely unlike AD 70. There are elements associated with this that could never have taken place during Titus's defeat of Jerusalem. This has to be an event far into the future when the nations themselves gather against God's people. It's talked about in Revelation very, very clearly and in Daniel as well. Sign five, I told you, is going to be distress in heaven and earth. At the same time, this great siege in Jerusalem occurs and toward the end of the tribulation, verse 25, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity. Matthew calls it a time of great difficulty and suffering and judgment and tribulation unlike anything the world has ever seen. So things will heighten as this passage grows. You see the intensity of the judgment escalating and the sorrows sign six is really jesus he is his own sign finally at the end of all of this time as judgment has fully fallen and as the nations are gathered outside jerusalem and seeking to destroy god's people oh the king will return he will return verse 27 and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with great power and great glory the final sign will be him So six signs that Jesus lays out here, spanning the entire uh, uh, expanse of the last days. Some of these they would taste, some of these we are tasting, some of these, I believe, as his church, we will not be here to endure. But they're all what Jesus said would arch over that time until his visible return. He finishes that, and then just so you know where you see the passage going, then he adds two lessons to this teaching. Verse 29, 
Lesson one is that some will live to see the end itself. They said, what will be the sign of the end? They thought they might see it. They didn't understand the span of time that God had planned instead. But Jesus said that there will be a generation that will see this. Verses 27, uh, pardon me, uh, you go down to verses 29 and 31, and he talks about a parable of the fig tree ripening in this time. And he talks about a generation, verse 32, that will not pass away until all has taken place. I believe that this generation will be that generation of people living in the time of the tribulation when they see the final acts that Jesus talks about. Oh, they'll live to see his return. Those who are ready to welcome him with joy, those who have defied him with mourning. And then finally, There's a lesson for all believers who would ever read this teaching, and that's verses 34 to 37. And he talks about watching over your heart and your life in the midst of all of these things as they happen. His return may may be very, very distant. Not only it was distant from them, it may be still distant from us. But he says, as you know what I've told you, and as you understand and see things happening that tell you that I will be coming, you make your heart ready. Don't let your hearts be weighed down with sin, for this could come upon all all who dwell on the earth, but you need to be ready. And so we're going to take some lessons out of that. So that's the survey of the chapter. I want you to see how your Bible reads. I want you to understand where we're heading in these weeks. I do believe this is teaching given so we can understand it. So Jesus, number one, gives a time-spanning answer to a question. Number two, he teaches six signs and two lessons regarding the entire span of time called the last days. Here's the third point on the perspective. Jesus here tells us that certain things, signs if you will, will increase until he returns. This is why I, I, I want to take a little bit more time in introduction Because he says something, and take a look at your passage now. And he says in verse 9, When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Now look at the last phrase. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. What is Jesus telling them there? There's going to be an extended period of time when the things that he's now telling them will occur. His, his coming is not going to be sudden and cataclysmic. It's going to be preceded by events, and those events are going to take a period of time. The end will not be at once. It's going to be an, over an extended period of time. Do we know what that time is? No. But Jesus said, oh, there's going to be time that will pass, and these events are going to be signs that, that, that this time is passing and my return is getting closer but I don't want you to be deceived into believing that, there are, that it's going to be immediate. There are going to be things that are going to be occurring before my visible return to the planet. Now, it's interesting. In Matthew 24 and in verse 3, pardon me, verse 8, Matthew adds a comment that Jesus made as he gave this teaching on the Mount of Olives. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8, Jesus says, All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is important. Jesus is describing all these events that I've just described to you. And he says they're just the beginning of birth pains. This is another point in which he makes the point that this is going to take place over time. And 
the signs that I'm teaching you about will increase in severity and frequency in the same way that the birth pains of a woman going through approaching childbirth increase in severity and frequency. They're going to come closer and closer together. Birth pains is how Jesus described it. Now, what does that tell us? One author and commentator I read this week put it this way. The idea of birth pangs is a very vivid analogy often used in the scriptures. Birth pangs are an increasing sequence of contractions that finally become... This is a a male writer writing it, so... (laughs) All of you who've been through it are going to describe it differently. Just have mercy. It's a male who wrote it, and it's a male who's reading it. In other words, it doesn't do it justice, but anyway... Birth pains, he writes, are an increasing sequence of contractions that finally become fiercely intense and result in the big event, birth. It is an apt analogy for understanding human history, he writes. The contractions or the pains start out lightly and then they increase and they increase and they increase till they reach a point of excruciation before the big event. So Jesus is saying these are just the birth pangs. These are just the very early birth pains and they've been going on for 2,000 years and they have been escalating and you can expect that to continue, he told the disciples. If you want to see what they're going to look like at the very end, just before the event of his visible coming, you can read where they get really severe in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. That's one author's understanding of it. Now, I've been an observer uh, of this phenomenon six different times. And, uh, you know, I, I, haven't, I even heard a prophecy teacher talk about this once. He says, who knows where we're at in the whole span of this process. Maybe the earth and world history is just in the Braxton Hicks stage. <laughs> you, know, you know, Braxton and Hicks is just those... It's, it's where, how the body does practice contractions. I'm sure there were more than practice to you ladies, but that's the way my wife described it. She said, don't get excited. Yes, it's just, it's just my body preparing itself for what's to come. And they would come and go, and she didn't get excited or worried at all. Maybe that's where we are in history. I don't know. But I do know that after that, um, she went from Braxton Hicks to what we discovered, especially on our first one or two deliveries, was uh, premature labor pains. And that's where everybody gets excited and she thinks it's coming and you get in the car and you go there at one in the morning to the ER and they smile at you and take a, do an exam and say, hey, have a good evening, maybe get some pizza on your way home. <laughs> and then you're walking around the block to try and see if you can increase the prematurely. Okay, I'm just being totally transparent. Walking around, I remember that. I got every little piece of concrete memorized over and over You see, it's a process. Maybe we're there in human history. I don't know. Or sometimes this didn't happen to us, thank God, but sometimes all of a sudden it comes upon you in an escalation and intensity and a frequency and it's one of those moments where she's in the right seat of the car and you're heading to the hospital and she says, stop, pull over. And then you suddenly have an event that goes into the news. But uh, 
I don't know where we are. Of course I can't know. We can't know either. But Jesus is indicating he's using an image here that talks about a process of time, increasing frequency, intensity of these things. I hope you get the understanding. Holman's New Testament commentary says there's three implications about birth pangs in this text. First, he says in Matthew 24, 8, it is the beginning. Beginning implies that patterns of war and famine and earthquakes do have some connection with the end, but they don't necessarily indicate that the end is near. Adding to this concept is the idea of birth pains, which sometimes begin some time before an actual birth. In other words, the signs that Jesus talks about could be signs that occur a long time before he comes, but they are going to increase in intensity and frequency. Second, Holman says, birth is one of the most painful experiences in a woman's life, and Jesus' choice of word indicates that when the end does come, it will be very painful for all humanity. But third, the author writes, birth is one of the most joyously fulfilling experiences of a woman's life bringing about the emergence of something precious and beautiful and highly valued. And, and Jesus says, these pains will come, but then my arrival will come, and the greatest blessing will soon arrive. So there's a lot here. I hope you understand it. The best way I can put this in my own words is that uh, Jesus told them things are going to get increasingly bad until they're suddenly worse. These signs are not pleasant signs that we're going to talk about. And he said they're going to get increasingly bad until they're suddenly worse. What's the suddenly worse part? Tribulation. When judgment falls on the world. Now, I believe we're going to be taken from that. I've taught you that. But we'll be here for the increasingly difficult times, though. And that's why I believe this was left in Scripture for the, for the disciples with the same question that they had. Now, I told you that there are six signs. Let's go to the second part of the message today. And that's, we're going to now begin over the next couple of weeks to go through the prophecies of the passage. Remember, Jesus gave six prophecies, if you will, signs. We're going to go through two, Lord willing, today. Sign one. Now go back to Luke 21 from Matthew 24. And you will see that sign one, he said, will be spiritual deception and deceivers, verse 8. And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. What do we learn about these individuals who will appear over history? From the very beginning, when, when the disciples were having their ministry, Jesus warned them personally, you're going to have to battle false messiahs and false teachers all the way to today. Are we still battling false Christs and false teachers? Oh, I'll show you, yes. So what are they like? He says, many of them will come, for many will come. It's going to be lots of people over all the last days. And we know that history, history records it. You can research it. Many, many, many figures, human beings have come over the ages since Jesus ascended who have claimed to be Christ, who have claimed his Messiahship. They will claim that they are he. He says, they're claiming I am he, and the Greek language is there simply as I am. In other words, they're going to claim divinity. That's how Jesus described who he was. I am was how God and Jehovah introduced himself to Moses in Exodus 3 when Moses said, who are, what's your name? And God says, I am. And Jesus, I think six or eight different times in his, in his teaching ministry, told the Jews, I am. It was a sign of deity, and he says these, these people will not just be religious teachers or talk about spiritual concepts. They will claim the identity of Christ. I am he. 
Also, they'll, they'll begin teaching that the time is near. They're going to teach people over all the generations that they are the one who's going to return and they're going to bring in the kingdom. They're going to claim the kingdom is near. And finally, he says, don't go after them. The assumption there is that many will. And in Matthew 24, Matt, he says, many of you, many believers will. Many people will get deceived. Don't let that be you. So this is a powerful deception. Now, has that happened over history? Of course it has. This has been fulfilled in human relations. And history records many different individuals. You can take a look at it from Dosetheos, who was the first recorded false Christ in A.D. 50, before uh, 20 years after, as the church was just beginning in Judea itself, to an entire parade today. It's just fascinating. We've never in history been without individuals who claim to be Christ, who claim that they're divine, and who claim that they're going to bring history to a close. Just a couple in my lifetime. I remember as a very young believer in the early 1980s, sitting in my apartment or wherever I was, back in those days we read newspapers. I know it's a shocker. (laughs) Every morning, and it had all the news in it. There was nothing else. And I remember opening up the L.A. Times, the first section, Section A, and going in just a couple of pages, and there was a full, maybe some of you remember this, there was a full page, full page, uh, you could call it an ad, but it was this proclamation in the L.A. Times, and I'll never forget the headline, it says, the Christ is here. And underneath was all of this gibberish teaching about someone called Lord Maitreya. Any of you guys remember this? Yeah, oh yeah. So I literally was holding a prophetic event in my hands. Lord Maitreya was backed by a human teacher named Benjamin Krem. And uh, you may know the history on this. He claimed to be the Christ of all Christ, claimed that all the other Christs in previous history had failed. And there, were, there was a full-page ad in every major newspaper around the world that day. All the other Christs had failed. I am the master Christ. So has it happened in, in history? Well, it's happened in my history. Sounds like a few of you guys. There's, there's many others up here in the Northwest. Unfortunately, we gave birth to one in the 1990s, David Koresh. That was significant enough that it dominated American media for weeks. Do you remember this? I remember where I was, what office I was sitting in when the Branch Davidian compound burned to the ground. And I remembered one guy who hated Christianity and Christ so much that he got up from his office chair and, and basically raised his hands up in the air and said, it's about time, burn them all. I remember these events, maybe you do too, false Christ. Sun Young Moon has been around since the, the, the 1970s, the, the leader of the, the Unification Church, who was coronated as Messiah in a big event in downtown Washington, D.C., at one of the exclusive hotels attended by congressmen and senators, where they actually put a crown on his head and declared him to be the Messiah. I think you catch the drift that there have always been people like this, and Jesus promised that. Now, you say, well, you're just headline hunting, pastor. You love prophecy. You'll find anything to fit into prophecy. I'm not headline hunting. I've looked and researched at what's happened, and I'm simply commenting and wondering. You make your own conclusions. You just make your own conclusions. But there's on top of this, and I said this last week, I believe that it's also possible to make the case that there is more worldwide deception concerning the person of Jesus Christ at our time than at any other time in history since Jesus ascended. 
Think about it. The proliferation of cults is, un, is, is unmatched in terms of what's happened in human history, and technology has magnified it. One expert I read listed the, the top, top, top four or five uh, cults that are moving with remarkable growth rates across the world today. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormonism, explosive growth, one of the fastest growing religious commitments worldwide today. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, Jehovah's Witnesses, same kind of growth. You think it's happening here in America. Oh no, what's really happening is in the third world. The Church of Scientology, you say, that's a, oh, it's a cult, but it also claims religious things. It's a church. <laughs> And it's got a little veneer of Christianity sprayed in that confusing, weird world of Scientology. It's moving, and there are people grasping a hold of it. That I talked about the Unification Church, Sung Young Moon, who taught that Jesus actually failed on the cross, and now, the, now he is the new mediator between God and man. That's still moving, moving particularly in, in the Asian quarters of the world. So there's tens of millions of people I think in the first time in human history globally who are living with a deceived theology about Jesus Christ. I don't think that's ever happened. Now you add something even more controversial, you may not appreciate when I say it, but Islam itself has a theology about Jesus. Did you know that? Esau, really, they do believe that Jesus lived. They do believe that Jesus died. They, do, they actually believe he was born of a virgin and that he ascended into the heavenly place. They do not believe he is the son of God. They do not believe he died for your sins. And so it is a Christ with a broken theology. How many people are adherents of Islam today? Almost two billion. So when you think about this prophecy, I'm going to let you make your conclusions. I've simply looked at the world as it is, and I would say there's never been more people deceived about the nature of Jesus than there are today. Not to mention all the false teachers and self-proclaimed new apostles and false prophets in evangelicalism worldwide. It's a little hard to find the truth now in your mind, isn't it? I think I've proved the point. Now, as bad as this is, Jesus said it's going to rise and it's going to get worse. Like I said, Jesus' teaching here is that things are going to become increasingly bad. You'll see these, these signs grow, but in the very last days, or last portion of the end days, in the times of the tribulation, after we're gone, it's going to get suddenly worse. You might want to stick your thumb in Revelation 6 because we're going to come back here a couple of times. Revelation 6 about spiritual deception. How is it going to get worse in the tribulation? You already know the answer. There's going to be a great world deception known as the Antichrist. Revelation 6, the four horsemen, an image of the tribulation that was going to come on the earth and the judgments that was going to fall. And God, John was given this vision, and he says in Revelation 6, 2, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Most Bible commentators, I understand, believe that refers to the Antichrist, a real figure in coming world history. Oh, and he'll conquer all right, but the way he's going to conquer is by conquering the belief systems of the of the lost world. Isn't that true? He will compel all. 
eventually to worship him. Antichrist means in place of Christ and against Christ. The Greek word can carry both meanings, but he is putting himself in the place of Christ. That will rise to its highest escalation point in the time of the end. All things are going to get bad, but one day after we're gone, they're going to get suddenly worse, and Jesus talks about these signs here. Here's the second, and we'll close. Go back to Luke 21. The second sign of the six is that there will be great human and natural upheaval, verses uh, 8, pardon me, verse 9. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, terrors and great signs from heaven. The, the, the body of that teaching is two things. There's going to be great human events, mostly personified by wars and human tumult, human conflict, and there will be also natural upheaval, things happening in the natural structure of the earth. Wars? Well, we understand that. As someone has once said, a study of history is a study of war. Tumults is interesting. That's an interesting word. It, in the Greek, it, it was made up of two words, order and without. <laughs> no order. Here's how a couple Greek authorities describes it. It means literally without order or stability, thus has a basic meaning, meaning of an unsettled state of affairs, an upheaval, a state of violent group disturbance, a tumult or unrest, especially in a political or a social setting. Riots, revolutions would be synonymous with this. Loanida in their Greek uh, translation and commentary says, this means to rise up where, where people rise up in open defiance of authority with the presumed intention to overthrow it or to act in complete opposition to its demands. He is saying that the depravity of man is going to turn in on itself, and as you get closer to his return, you're going to see man in more and more disorder in his own affairs and against himself, and this is going to rise. I would, I would submit to you that we can certainly look at the human condition today and say that there are so many civil wars and coups that after a week or so in the, in the news cycle, you forget about them. Did you know that that's happened in, in southeastern, uh, the former Soviet Union, within two months, a major coup and, that was put down? You probably forgot all about it. One in Myanmar, may not been ongoing. Uh, a third one in Indonesia just a couple weeks ago where the government's dri- driven out. We, we, we read about these, but they're forgotten in, the life, in, 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 our, in our news cycle. I did read a survey recently, however, that says that 25% of all American voters, be either, either uh, liberal or conservative, believe that a civil coup will, is, is inevitable in our own governmental future. I just give that to you. Let's go back to wars and nation against nation. He amplifies it. He says wars in verse 9. And then nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Why did he add kingdom against kingdom? A lot of people debate that. Usually wars are nation to nation. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his commentaries on, on this passage and on the book of Revelation says the kingdom against kingdom phrase seems to indicate regional war, alliances of nations in conflict, whole sections of the world at war with one another. Beloved, that did not happen until 100 years ago. World War I was the first time that ever happened. We got out of that, and people declared it was the end of all wars. Remember that? Reading that in history books? 
Well, what would happen? It actually set the stage for World War II. And now we're rising and moving through all of that. This intrigued me, and I, I took a look at uh, all of this, and, and uh, I read the, went into the Cyclopedia Britannica, and I thought, well, let's talk about the history of war, and did, was Jesus right in saying that these would increase this man's depravity increases? Encyclopedia Britannica. Before Christ's, before Christ's life, before he was, came into human history, all of history before he was born, there were only 11 major wars in world history. Only 11. Since then, there have been over 130. Most of them have occurred in the last 200 years. So you just want to talk about this intensity and this increasing process of being together. And now we live in the aftermath of two world wars, and I've lived through the Cold War, and now we're in a, in a situation where you think about it. The language of the possibility of World War III has been mentioned by more world leaders in the last six months than I've ever seen in my lifetime. You're saying, oh, you're headline hunting again. You prophecy bug, you. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just observing, and I'm wondering I do believe Jesus said these things are going to increase in intensity and, 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 and number closer. I don't know. Yesterday morning in Hiroshima, Japan, the leader of the United Nations said, quote, humanity is playing with a loaded gun. And the risk posed by the crisis in Ukraine, the Middle East, and the Korean Peninsula. Yesterday also China's leaders stopped taking our phone calls. Their military leaders stopped taking our phone calls for the first time in 50 years, since 1972. And also this morning, rockets landed again just west of Jerusalem's city limits. I don't know. You tell me. Human and natural upheaval, but as bad as things are going to get, and Jesus said they're going to get increasingly bad before he comes, one day they will get suddenly worse. Go back to Revelation, please. Told you to keep your thumb there. John's vision from heaven goes on as the, the seven seals of judgment are open. Revelation 6, verse 3 when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, the second horseman of the apocalypse, if you will. Bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Wars will increase to an unimaginable level in the tribulation time. And that will be just before he returns. Things are getting bad, but they're going to get monumentally worse after we're gone. Sobering, isn't it? I told you this was a sober stretch of Scripture. How about earthquakes and famines and pestilences? Those are mentioned in Luke 21, and they're mentioned in verses uh, uh, 10 and 11. What about all of these things? Well, he said birth pains increasing in intensity. Are they increasing in intensity? I don't know. I've just done a little research. You can be the judge. I do know that NBC News recently reported. By the way, it, it says here great earthquakes. Jesus talks about that. That's seismoid from which we get seismic and mega from which we get mega. <laughs> mega quakes. Not just the quakes they were used to in the Judean life. No, these are going to be mega quakes. Well, who knew that years after Jesus taught that, scientists would have a term mega quake. 
NBC News reported just recently the annual, annual number of great earthquakes, mega seismoids in the word of Jesus, nearly tripled over the last decade. Providing a reminder to this is NBC News, providing a reminder to Americans that unruptured faults like those in the Northwest United States might be due for a big one. In other words, that big fault that they just now discovered off of Seattle and Portland that could create a tsunami that would basically wash away that entire population corridor. They're saying these great earthquakes that have suddenly tripled in the last 10 years threaten that great point. Wow. Get a hotel far from the beach. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> NBC News goes on. Between 2004 and 2014, 18 earthquakes magnitudes of 8.0 or more rattled subduction zones around the globe. That's their technology. That's, listen, that's an increase of 265% over the average rate of the previous century. I said, well, that's just NBC News. I'll go to the real source, the U.S. Geological Survey. I went to their... Data. Aren't I smart? No, I know how to move a mouse. <laughs> Did you know that there are quakes, they call them mega quakes, 8.5 and above. They've tracked them all the way through recorded history. And there have only been uh, 20 8.5s and above. And they've all occurred since 1906. I don't know what to tell you. We shift to pandemics. We're all familiar with the sudden arrival of the experience of a pandemic in our world culture, maybe for the first time in our lifetime. I don't think I need to explain much there, but I took a look at, at the time pandemic history in world history. The top five worst pandemics, which kill one million or more people, have all occurred within the last 100 years. Not the last 4,000 years of recorded history, not the last you know, 500 years, not the last 200 years, but the last 100 years. And of the seven worldwide pandemics that weren't ones that spent all over the world, four of them in the last 100 years. So I don't know what to say. All I know is that Jesus said there's going to be birth pains. They're going to come with increasing frequency and increasing intensity. And what are they going to involve? Wars, civil tumult, Nation rising against nation, whole sectors of the earth rising against one another, great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. All I can say is that's what he said. You make your own conclusions, but this is written for you to understand. Now, I said things are going to get increasingly bad. One day they're going to be exponentially worse, and I close with this in Revelation chapter 6. I told you to keep your thumb there. Is this going to be dramatically worse after we're gone and when judgment's falling on the world in the tribulation time? Oh, yes. Revelation 6, verse 5. And he opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. So a white horse representing the Antichrist and his deception, a red horse representing the, the death of war and loss of peace on the planet, and then a black horse. How does he represent? Famine human loss, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, in other words, uh, a, a portion of a loaf of bread for your entire day's wages, runaway inflation, runaway poverty in the times of the tribulation are coming, he said. 
And then finally, verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a fourth horse, a pale horse. The Greek talks about light, light gray or greenish, the color of illness and death, of disease and death. What's his, what's his deliverance of judgment going to be? And its rider's name was death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Things are getting, could get bad, but one day it will be exponentially worse and one-fourth of the world under that teaching will die of pestilence and famine. Birth pains, birth pains. I told you, this is a solemn stretch of scripture, isn't it? It's a solemn stretch of history. Now after all this today, under the teaching of the word, you may say, well, what do we do? What do we as believers do? Even if we, if we see some of these happening in our own times or we fear, fear these things happening in the times of our children, what do we do in our space of time right now? Well, Jesus told you to do three things, and this is back in Luke 21. He said three things. Number one, don't be led astray. Verse 8. Now is the time when you live in your word. You live in that scripture and you come under the teaching of the word and you make sure that you understand the truth and you don't let any false teacher or new apostle or revealing prophet or whack job on the internet or wherever else you might be going for thrills and chills tear apart what you basically know about God's word. Deception's going to rise and the devil will be behind it. Don't you let yourself get derailed. Number one, don't be led astray. And then he says, number two in verse nine, don't be terrified. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. What a blessed thing for him to remind us about. We're human. We're soulish. When these things happen, are you going to be tempted to be scared? Absolutely. What's the predominant emotion in the world right now? Two things, anger and, and, and fear. See it everywhere because of the events, particularly of recent years. And I see that among believers. Now, what happens if you don't know what Jesus said about these things are all going to come? They're part of my father's sovereign plan. Yes, you're going to see him get worse in intensity and nearer in frequency. But it's okay because it means I'm working history out and one day I'm coming for you. I believe he's coming for me possibly this day. And so I have a great hope. I have what the Bible calls a blessed hope. So I'm not going to let terror ruin and rule my spirit as a Christian. I'm not going to do it. But when you see these events and you don't know that God has a plan, of course you'd be terrified. He says, don't be terrified. And then the third thing he says is patiently await my coming. This is way back in the end of the text for verse 28. It's a blessed verse. Now when these things begin to take place, Luke 21, 28, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Know that every time this worsens, his coming is that closer. And he's going to come at the right time. Not your time, but the right time. And he's going to take you with him. And so just Await, patiently await his coming. Don't be led astray, verse 8. Don't be terrified, verse 9. And patiently await his coming, verse 28. Now, did you know that part of communion, which we're going to take in just a few moments now, was actually designed to help you patiently endure 
and wait for his coming. It's fascinating. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When Paul taught the believers about communion, he said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And what's the last three words? Until he comes. These are scary times. Human evil is a scary thing. God's judgment is a dreaded thing. But as believers, we belong to him. And every time you come to communion, you hold in your two hands the gospel that bought you. And you're comforted by it. Godet, the the Bible commentator, said communion is a meeting place of his comings. It's a place where we thank him for the first coming of the cross work. And we know that he'll hold us until the second coming when we see him. So I want you to draw in comfort from what I've said today. If you know the Lord Jesus, if you don't, come to know him right now. And in communion as we come to the tables now, let the comfort of your heart be real.